So Eve Ensler, famous playwright, performer, and activist, you might know her from her play The Vagina Monologues, just wrote this unbelievable book called The Apology, where she imagines the apology her father never gave her for the sexual, physical, and psychological abuse he inflicted on her as a child. Yep, it's kind of like the imaginary reckoning with Pope Francis in episode 22, but Eve Ensler did it for her own father. And she was just interviewed about the book by Lauren Schiller on Inflection Point, a podcast about how women rise up. And it is a beautiful interview with so much resonance to Reckonings, and so I'm serving it up right here in the Reckonings feed. Enjoy it. And when you're done enjoying it, please let Eve Ensler know that she would enjoy Reckonings. You can let her know on Instagram at The Apology. That's just at The Apology. Okay, here we go. I'm Lauren Schiller, and this is Inflection Point, with stories of how women rise up. This summer, I was invited by the Commonwealth Club of California to talk with Eve Ensler about her book, The Apology. Obviously, I jumped at the chance. Eve is known for her Tony Award-winning play, The Vagina Monologues. She also founded V-Day, a global platform to end violence against women and girls. And she founded One Billion Rising, the largest global mass action to end gender-based violence in over 200 countries. Eve's latest book, The Apology, is already a bestseller, and it's a powerful and personal life-changing examination of abuse and atonement, and the transformational power of an apology. It was an emotional evening, and dare I say, the start of a movement. I'm thrilled to share my conversation with Eve Ensler, recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco on June 11th of 2019. I should note a stress warning. This episode does contain conversation about sexual assault and violence. So let's start, Eve. Tell us a bit about why you wrote this book. Well, I think there were a combination of factors why I wrote this book. Um, One, I was sexually abused by my father from the time I was five until the time I was 10. And after that, um, he began to physically abuse me um, in kind of horrendous and scary ways, almost murdering me a couple of times. And I think all my childhood, I dreamed that my father would apologize to me. I sort of thought that moment will come. Um, I actually wrote him apology letters because I was always wrong and always bad and, and, and it was always expected of me. But I think there was also a part of me that thought if I wrote him enough apology letters, he'd get the idea and he'd write one back. And then he died. And so he's been dead for 31 years. But still the yearning for the apology has always been there. The second piece is that having been an organizer and an activist for 21 years, my whole life really, um, in the movement to end violence against all women and girls, I've watched women tell our stories, break the silence, call men out, bravely tell our hearts and souls and, 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 and risk humiliation, risk attack. And in all that time, I have never heard a man apologize publicly, authentically, deeply for what he's done. And in all the recent iteration of the Me Too movement, I have never heard a man publicly, authentically, deeply apologize. So I started to think, why is that? 
And then I started to ask people, have you ever heard a man? It's sort of the way I started the vagina monologues. You know, tell me about your vagina. I would say to, you know, <laughs> women, um, have you ever heard a man? And, and then nobody could answer one, you know, instance of that. And then I started to think, in 16,000 years of patriarchy, have we ever heard a man in recorded history, you know, that we could read a public apology and no one could point to one? So I suddenly realized that this might be fundamental to why we're still where we are and that maybe um, I could actually write my father's apology and say the words and create the words um, that I needed to hear in order to get free. And I embarked on this process, which was grueling, painful, revelatory, and ultimately profoundly liberating. So that, that's the kind of genesis of it. So the book is written as your father writing to you. Um, and we have readings from the Audible edition of the Apology, which are performed by Eduardo Ballerini, who channels you channeling your father. Um, and we're going to play a couple of, of excerpts from the beginning of the book. How very strange to be writing you. Am I writing to you from the grave? Or the past? Or the future? Am I writing as you, or as you would like me to be, or as I really am beneath my own limited understanding? And does it matter? Am I writing in a language I never spoke or understood, which you have created inside both of our minds to bridge the gaps, the failures to connect? Maybe I am writing as I truly am, as you have freed me by your witness. Or I am not writing this at all but simply being used as a vehicle to fulfill your own needs and version of things. You always wrote me letters. I found that peculiar and strangely moving. We lived in the same house, but you were writing to me, your little girl handwriting attempting straight lines, but wandering all over the page. It was as if you were trying to make contact with some aspect of me, a part you could not find in the heated moments of our conflict as if you're trying through poetry to appeal to a secret self that I had once made available to you. Usually you wrote apology letters. So fitting that you would now want an apology letter from me. You were always apologizing, begging for forgiveness. I had reduced you to a daily degrading mantra of, I'm sorry. How did it feel to hear that? Well, the first time I heard yeah. um, a man read this, it was um, it was really weird and eerie. But it was also just like I, you know, I was interviewed by this lovely man, Ron Charles, at, at, at the Washington Post, and he asked me if this was going to become a theater piece, which I'm really happy to say that it is. And um, I said, I think <laughs> I said I think women would pay a lot of money to come hear a man make an apology, you know. <laughs> um, and, 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 and the truth of the matter is, like, every time I hear it, I feel more and more released. Because there's something about the concretization. There's something about an apology that is the alchemy of that, which I'll talk about more later, that is so releasing of so much in our bodies because we never hear it. And as weird as it sounds and as eerie as it feels, it just feels like, oh, okay. I, what I knew to be true all along was true all along, and now we're having a dialogue and we're going on a journey where that's going to get told, you know? Yeah. 
Well, let's let's zoom out for a few minutes and talk about what you referenced when you talked about why you wrote this book, which is what the state of apologies is between men and women. We don't have a culture of apology unless you're a woman, in which case you over-apologize. <laughs> you apologize for yourself and everyone around you, right? And existing. And existing, right? Just taking up a little bit of space. So... And in, and in the Me Too movement, we heard thousands and thousands of stories that you already knew were out there. I mean, you've been living in this, in this world and, and catching these stories, but we heard hardly any apologies. So, um, so it seems like we need to understand, or maybe they need to understand, what is an apology, that there's not necessarily a template for it. Well, I, I just want to say, I think um, I learned so much about what an apology is writing this book. I learned about the anatomy of an apology and the tenets of an apology. And I, I want to say a couple of things. I think an apology is a humbling. It's making yourself vulnerable. It's an equalizer. I think it's everything about an apology is in the details. Um, the liberation of the victim or the survivor is in the details. It's not, I'm sorry I sexually abused you, or I'm sorry I hurt you, or I'm sorry if you feel bad. It's here's exactly what I did, and here was my intention behind what I did. And I think we live in a country that has diabolical amnesia. We don't remember anything. We don't remember our origins, the, the genocide against the indigenous whose land we stand on. We don't remember the 400 years of slavery annihilated hundreds and thousands of people and then moving into Jim Crow and then moving into mass incarceration. We don't remember our own families. The events that are happening in front of us as they're happening, we're erasing them. And we don't remember yesterday's news. It's already gone. Um, so I think what I really learned is that an apology is the antidote to amnesia. It actually makes what occurred, it makes it real. It did occur. The other piece that I, I really learned is that for, an, for a man to apologize, one has to go back in time and history and understand what made you do what you did. What happened in your life? What happened in your origins? What happened in your childhood? Nobody is born a pedophile. No one is born with a machete in their hand. Something happens to boys that makes them turn and become different kinds of beings in this world. And I think one of the most profound aspects of writing this book, and the most difficult, and I, I just want to say about this book, it's an offering, it's not a prescription, it's not a have to. It, there are many survivors who don't want an apology, will never want it, and that's all amazing and good. There is no, there's no must. I knew for me, I was at a point where I had vestiges left um, I had anger left that was poisoning me. I was still living within my father's story, and I wanted to be living in a different story, and I wanted to see if I could get into that story. Um, but I think one of the things that I discovered in going back into my father's story is like I began to unravel the why. And I think for all of us who've been abused, whether it's racial injustice, we are obsessed with the why. And I think when you begin to go back, and, and I began to unravel, and my father began to tell me the story of his psychological, emotional evolution or de-evolution in his case, I was like, oh, I see, I, see the, I see the story. I see the story that led up to him becoming... The, and in that sense, it wasn't about me anymore. I saw it was about him. 
I saw it was on him. It was what had been done to him that led him to do those things, but it had nothing to do with me being a bad person or a slut or a whore, any of the terrible things he ever called me. And it really released me by understanding that why. And then I think the last piece or the second last piece is being accountable. Being accountable once you've gone through that whole journey of self-interrogation and self-reflection and you've spelled out the details of what you've done and you've looked into your malintentions, then it's taking responsibility for that in a way that your victim or survivor feels satisfied and indicates that you couldn't, you've gone through a deep enough journey where you couldn't possibly do that to somebody else. To me, that's an apology. We teach prayer in school right? We teach the devotion of prayer and the concentration of prayer. We teach the humbling of the petition, but we don't teach the practice of apology. We teach maybe, oh, I'm sorry, but that's not an apology. An apology is a deep, profound, spiritual, psychological, political act. And we live in a country that is so not about apologies. It's punitive, it's violent, it's, it, it, that's the cycle we're in. The apology is the practice that can break us out of that cycle. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. You're listening to my conversation with Eve Ensler about her book, The Apology. Stress warning, this episode contains conversation about sexual assault and violence. So you... Right in the book, in your father's words, that to be an apologist is to be a traitor to men. I'm wondering, do you think that he really felt that, or do you think that he was using that as an excuse? Well, I, th- I think when my father said that to me, and I really felt like he said it to me, because I don't know how I would know that, um, <laughs> he, he just basically said to me, to be an apologist is a traitor to men. Once one man apologizes and, and admits he knows that he's wrong, and he knew what he was doing was wrong, the whole story of patriarchy begins to crumble. And I really literally stopped in my tracks for the rest of that day. I was like, wow, this is a column. This is a major column of patriarchy, the apology. I think what I really understood, I mean, there's a point in the book where my father is, he gets to move from limbo to hell. And in hell, he meets all the fathers, all the fathers. And he he actually says to me at one point, I would rather spin in hell and be within the, the, the tribe of men, then I would apologize because at least within the tribe of men, I know my identity, I know my value, I have privilege, I have power. But to give this up, who would I be? And I think one of the things that patriarchy is so genius at is offering no alternatives, right? It's constantly dividing people and separating people with no, with no doorways out. And, I, and I've said this my whole life, that the tyranny of patriarchy has been much, much more devastating to men than it has to women. We have our hearts intact. We have our spirits intact. I think what, what's happened to men, and, and, I, and I really learned this in this book, is, is again, I, I can just say a little bit about my father's childhood. My father was born like 12 years after the last um, child in his family. He was the mistake that became the miracle. He was the golden boy, the divine right of kings. He was going to bring the family to the promised land. And my father was adored, adored. But adoration is not love. And I really want to make this distinction. We adore boys. And what that means is we have projected ideal images of who they're supposed to be that we project onto them, that they have to live up to, having very often nothing to do with who they really are. And so every time a boy 
is, is, is experiences his tenderness or his vulnerability or his heart or his sorrow or his wonder. And that's not in keeping with that adoration. He's got to push it underground. And in my father's case, he pushed it so much underground that it eventually metastasized into another persona called the shadow man, who he talks about in the book. And that shadow man actually surfaced at my birth. Because what happened was, I was the first daughter, and my father was overwhelmed with the tenderness he did not know how to experience. He had been robbed of his own tenderness, he didn't know how to be tender to himself, and he didn't know how to be tender in the world. And so when I was born, he didn't know to sit with tenderness. You know, I was saying last night, my granddaughter was in the audience. I look at my granddaughter sometime, and I'm filled with such overwhelming love for them. I don't know what to do. I sometimes just sit and cry. It's just so big, that love. And I know how to sit with that tenderness. Like, I, I just weep. But if you've never had the experience of having tenderness, you want to get rid of it. You want to smash it. You want to exploit it. You want to rape it. You want to conquer it. You want to dominate it. You want to, you want to make it go away. And I think that's what happened in our, my father's early years with me. I think he began adoring me and, and being overwhelmed by that. And then it became very perverse and sexual and weird. And I think part of what we have to look at is, why are we separating our boys from their hearts? Why are we creating idealized images of them, of who they're supposed to be, when they're actually just brilliant who they are? They're tender and they're funny and they're wise and they're full of sparkle. And if they want to wear pink, let them wear pink. And if they want to dress with fairy wings, let them dress with fairy wings. But we have all these ideas of what they're supposed to be. And, and so what we do is we separate them and we separate them and we separate them from their hearts, from their selves, from their feelings. And then we ask ourselves, why is this 18-year-old boy lying on top of a girl, raping her when she's screaming, no, no, no? Well, he's not feeling anything. He's not feeling what she's feeling because he's not feeling. He's, he's been robbed of his feelings. So I think that really opened up a huge piece of compassion in me towards my father, not to, to justify his behavior. I think there's a big difference between justification and explanation, but he, I, he explained it. And if we don't get underneath why men are doing what they're doing, if we don't get underneath this story, if we keep going at it and at it, we are going to disappear as a human species. We will become extinct. So I think that's what that excavation taught me. So you and I had a chance to talk almost exactly a year before the Me Too movement exploded. And I just want to give kudos to Eve for being a visionary always. And in this particular conversation, you said that we are at a tipping point for men to rise up and declare they're going to bring in a new idea of what manhood is and what it means to live in a world where women are safe and free. Mm. And I, I, I mean, I feel like with your publishing this book and you know, getting your message out to as many people as you are in the way that you are, that you are manifesting mm. that movement and you are making it possible for that to start happening. Um, and I was wondering if we could talk uh, just a, a bit about you know, like you said, we, aren't, we can't erase our history. It took us a long time to get even here. Mm -hmm. um, where, kind of where we are in the chain of events that could lead us to this moment where this could actually work. Well, I think the, the $10 million question is what will catalyze men to engage in this process, right? And I have to say, um, having been on this book tour now for um, five or six or seven weeks, I've been really moved by men. 
I've been moved by male journalists. I've been moved by men who've invited me on their shows. I've been moved by men in audiences. I think we all feel this. We're at this moment in human civilization that either we're going to perish or we're, or we're going to break through to the next level of human consciousness. And I know I can only say that I don't believe in punishment. I, I was raised on punishment every day. I was punished every day of my life. It didn't educate me. It didn't transform me. It didn't make me a better person. It made me bitter. It made me defiant. It made me raging. It made me hateful. And I think if we look at our prison system, uh, obviously it's, it's, it's an, a diabolical system, um, which is highly unjust in terms of the racist aspects of it and the economic injustice aspects of it. But prisons don't make people better. They harden people and they erase people and they exile people. And I think what I, I guess I've always believed what Castro said, that we only need 10% of the people to have a revolution. Um, we need 10% of the men to be brave now and to come forward and to begin the process of reckoning and begin the process of, of, of speaking into and doing the deep work, asking themselves why they've done, why they continue to do the things they do. Not expecting attack and to be thrown away, but we have to open a pathway so that this process can occur. Because otherwise, we're at a stalemate. And I was really moved to see that the NYPD apologized for Stonewall. I thought that was really profound. And I thought it's in the air, like something's beginning to shift. I've, I've been seeing these little little doorways of, of apologies beginning to open. But I don't know about you, but that was a very profound thing to hear a police officer say we were wrong. We did something that was unjust, and we are taking responsibility for that. And I think, um, you know, we have a website now called theapologybook.net where wonderful people have been writing about what is an apology and why is it important. And Farah Tanis did this beautiful, beautiful um, guide for how to do apologies. But we've also been inviting people to write in apologies either to their victims or write apologies to as their vic, as their perpetrators to themselves and we got our first apology i'm happy to say and um and it was a man and i have to say it was a real apology of of um, a boy who had molested a 15 year old when he was 21 years old and in his letter he took complete responsibility for what he had done on every level I knew that you were younger, I used you, I manipulated you, I got you to believe and trust me, but I took advantage of that. He went down, boom, boom. And I have to say, just reading that letter, other things got released in me. Because it's a communal process. When one person apologizes, you begin to feel what's been holding in you all these years. You begin to feel the tentacles of that releasing. And I just think what I'm hoping, what I'm dreaming, what I is that men will now feel emboldened to come forward. And I just want to say this. You know, people keep saying it's so hard for men to come forward. We have been doing this work for 70 years, women. Starting with the African-American women who came forward initially to fight off white rapists and put their souls on the line and risk all kinds of violence. We have put ourselves on the line. We have told our stories. We have risked shame. We've been under attack. I mean, we only have to look to Anita Hill or Christine Blasey Ford. We have done that scary work, and we're still standing. And men can now do that scary work. And we have to obviously help create a pathway, but there have to be the brave men who are willing to say, all right, 
I'm going to come forward and do that. And what's the payoff? The payoff is you don't get out of this world having done something violent and evil and mean without it contaminating your soul forever. You don't. And you're holding it in your body, in your being, whether you're conscious of it or not, and it's impacting everything you do every day of your life. So the payoff is you get free. You get free. And I think the point of existence is to get free. So not everyone's ready to forgive, right? So what, I mean, what, what would you say to women who are, they're not quite in the place where they even want the apology? Is it possible for men to still go through the process even if there's not someone there that is ready to forgive them? Well, I don't think the apology should be based on forgiveness. I don't even know mm-hmm. if I know what forgiveness is, and I'm just going to be honest. I, the words always kind of creep me out. <laughs> and, um, and, and I'll just say why. I, I feel that it always has religious overtones, and it always feels man-dated. Um, like, it, it's an obligation. Yeah. And um, I don't know how to do that. I, I don't think the onus is ever on the victim to forgive. But what I do believe in is the alchemy of an apology. I think when someone sits and looks at you across the table and you are clear that they have given you a detailed accounting of what they've done, where they've gone into their souls and they've investigated why they've done it, what led them to do it, where they've, they've gone through every detail of unveiling their intentions and made amends, something actually happens in your body, in your mind, in your spirit. You can feel the tentacles of rancor and betrayal and hate all of it just begins to go bing, 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 bing. If that's forgiveness, I'm all for forgiveness. I sometimes hear bad therapists telling survivors, you know, forgive now and get over it. I just think that's deadly. It's deadly. It's, it, that's not something that can happen or that's not my experience of what can happen. What happens is you go through a process and I think if you can't get an apology from your, 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 your perpetrator, and in many cases women can't, I would highly recommend doing this exercise, um, not alone. You should do it with a counselor or a therapist or a clergy or a friend. But I will tell you something. We hold these perpetrators inside of us. And when we write letters from them to ourselves, we can move how they live inside us. So, for example, my father was here for years and years and years, monster lodged here. And I was in this dynamic with him where I was victim to his perpetrator forever. I mean, everything I do was about, you see, I'm not the stupid person you thought I was, proving to him, always in relationship to that. And that was his story, right? In writing this apology, I moved him from monster to apologist. I moved him from terrifying entity to broken, tragic, wounded boy. And in doing that, he lost power over me. He lost agency over me. And I think in, 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 at City of Joy, a month ago, Christine decided she would try this exercise out. City of Joy is the sanctuary for healing in a revolutionary center in the Congo. Um, that V-Day, it, it, it's a V-Day project and it's run by Christine Schuler Describer. And it's, it's just the most beautiful project where 90 women come for six months um, to be trained, to be healed, to be supported, who have suffered very, very bad sexual trauma. And she introduced this exercise and she said, it's unbelievable what started to happen. And she came into her office last week and there were piles of letters. Women have been up all night writing letters from their perpetrators to themselves and they were feeling so free and they were feeling... So I think it has the potential to liberate in all kinds of ways. 
This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. You're listening to my conversation with Eve Ensler about her book, The Apology. Stress warning, this episode contains conversation about sexual assault and violence. So in, in your book, you, I mean, you do go, you talked about the details. Do you go into a wrenching detail? He writes um, that he would enumerate what you did wrong uh, every week or every day and have his secretary type it up on his letterhead and then present it to you so that you would have to apologize for every item on the list. No, but it was even weirder than that. I mean, he would he would type up all the things I had done wrong on a memo from the desk of Arthur S. Ensler and it would be typed up. And then I was 16. He had a ping pong paddle and he would take down my underpants and bend me over his bed. And for everything I would done wrong, he would whack me with the ping pong paddle. So there was a whole kind of sadistic thing built into the I'm sorry bit, you know? Um, and I think, I think it's why I, 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 I think it's why I despise torture so much, why I despise punishment so much, why, um, because I, I think something I really learned as a child, the only way to survive that is to separate from yourself. The only way to survive that kind of ongoing violence is to leave your body. I, I can remember hearing him call me down and knowing I was going into a brutal session. And I would stand in front of the mirror and I would look at myself and I would say, you're going to go away now. You're not going to feel anything. You're going to disappear. You're not going to go into this. You stay here and the rest of you will go downstairs. And then I would go downstairs and he'd throw me against walls or he'd punch me. or he'd do, And I wouldn't feel a thing. I wouldn't feel a thing. And that prepared me to live a life where I would put myself in constant danger and not feel a thing. Right, and so that's what we do when we brutalize people. We 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 prepare them and and either to become brutalizers, and in the in, in the in the case of men who feel like they have power in the world, that's where they go. Um, in the case of some women who feel like they finally can't bear it anymore, they act out and they have violence. But for a lot of us, it's just about separating from ourselves and becoming kind of um, open to the violent mercy of the world because you don't feel and protect yourself from the danger that's around you. What's so interesting, tragic, I'm not sure the right adjective about that, is that that's the same way that you talk about your father having this alternate self exactly. also. Um, well, this goes into the details, so uh, yeah. trigger moment, May, just prepare yeah, yourself. Yeah, this will be intense, so everybody just prepare a little bit. I would find myself in your room at some twilight hour. I only felt alive between the daylight and darkness in that crepuscular realm where dream and memory are indecipherable. That's how I controlled you. Those aphoric hours where others in the house were lost in sleep and you were in a trance, separated from your body. I would find myself sitting on your bed, somehow carried there by shadow men. You would pretend to be asleep as if what was happening was not happening. You desperately wanted it and me to go away. I didn't go away. I never spoke, never uttered a sound. The silence was my power. Words would break the spell, make it real and ugly and what it was. What kind of bastard have I been? What kind of destruction have I wrought? I have lied and lied to myself and you. I cursed your future of love. At five, I took your body. You didn't give it to me. I contaminated your sweetness. 
I ripped the protective golden gates from your garden. I betrayed your trust. I rearranged your sexual chemistry and the basis of your desire. Wrongness and excitement were forever fused together. I made my stain. I left my stinking mark. I infected you. By invading and overwhelming your body, I killed your yearning so early. You did not and could not give me permission. There was no consent. You did not seduce me with your crinoline petticoats. You were simply being an adorable child. I overstimulated your five-year-old body and planted the seeds of intensity and thrill. You would push yourself too far, take heroin, jump off bridges, drive a hundred miles an hour. I robbed you of the ordinary. I destroyed your notion of family. I forced you to betray your mother. You lived in perpetual self-hatred and guilt. I created hierarchy, distrust, and violent competition between you and your siblings. None of you would recover from this. I robbed you of agency over your body. You didn't make any decisions. You didn't say yes. That was my projection in order to satisfy my needs. You were five years old. I was 52. You had no sovereignty. I exploited and abused you. I took your body. It was no longer yours. I rendered you passive. You compulsively gave it to whoever wanted it because I taught you you should. I forced you out of your body, and because you were dislocated and numb, you were unable to protect yourself. I compromised your safety and ability to defend yourself. I made it so that rape became what turned you on. I eviscerated your necessary boundaries so you never knew what was yours and when to say no or how to say stop. I tore the delicate walls of your vagina and made it vulnerable to disease and infection. Your body didn't and couldn't say yes. This was a convenient lie I told myself. You didn't know it was sex. I took what I needed by convincing myself you needed it too. I exploited your adoration. I forced you into secrecy, to lie to your mother, to develop a dual life. This split you in two. I made you feel like a whore. I made you feel you were never worthy of legitimate love. I made intimacy claustrophobic. I left my poison in you. I destroyed your memory by making you want to forget everything. This impacted your intelligence and ability to contain facts and take tests. I stole your innocence. I dimmed your life force and made you feel your sexuality was the cause of bad things. I used your being and body to serve myself. I did all this. Thank you for letting us share that. Um, there are a couple questions that have come in asking about your mom and where she was when all this was happening. Do you want to talk about mm-hmm. that? I think, you know, I, my mother and I went through a really long journey after I confronted her. But I, I, I think my mother was of a generation where they didn't believe they were equal to men. Um, they believed that men had the power my, my father was like a CEO. My mother was at best his executive assistant, you know. And I often felt like he had four children, 
and she was one of them. She was a woman who had been very poor, had grown up in the Midwest, um, and my father was her way out of that poverty. And I think by the time um, the abuse started, she had three children, and she had no economic security. She had no economic wherewithal. She had no job. She had no prospects. And when I when I confronted my mother, which was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, to just sit and face my mother and say what my father had done to me, um, of course she knew. It was very odd because at the, at the end of it, she said, well, I know your father almost murdered you. I was there for all the times he did that when he beat you and everything. But I didn't know about the sexual stuff as if the beatings were all fine. It was just a weird little moment. Um, <laughs> But um, later she she repented for that, but it was just like weird. But um, I think my mother um, said to me, uh, months after I confronted her, she called me up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and she was hysterical one night, and she said, I realize I sacrificed you. I could not bear the idea of being poor again. And I really let your father do what he wanted to you to keep my security. And... As devastating as that was, it, it, I knew it was true. And so it was the beginning of my mother making amends to me because she told me the truth. And we went through a very long journey before she died. And I feel like every day, she once said to me something really startling. And it showed me the power of perpetrators over our, our lifetime, not just this lifetime, but many, many lifetimes. She said to me, what if I meet your father in the next life? And he's mad at me that I believed you. And to me, that was the most shuddering thing she ever said to me. Wow. Because he even had power in, in death over her. I, I don't think we can underestimate ever what violence does to us. How deeply it goes in not just to the cellular makeup of our physical bodies, but into the 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 spiritual DNA of not only this story but our ancestral story. It just goes on and on into generation, because fear is so powerful. It's so powerful, and so I I think with my mother, um, because she just kept going back at it to try to go deeper into it, to explain and understand why she had done before she died. When she died, we were in a beautiful place, and I was able to really let her go. And I feel like she left this world in a really good place. Well, who was the first person that you ever told that this was happening? Was it your mom? No. No. No, by no means. No, it was... It, it was the, the violence... The first time I ever talked about it, I was drunk with my two roommates, and everyone was laughing and talking about things, and, and I was talking, I was just, I, you know when you grow up in, in a violent situation, you have no context to understand that that's weird or abnormal, so you just think everybody's family does that? So I had these two fabulous roommates, and I was making a joke, and I went, and then my father said to my mother, Chris, get the kitchen knife. And everyone paused. <laughs> And said, what? And I said, yeah, he told my mother to get the kitchen knife so he could stab me. And they were like, that is not normal. That's not okay. That is not okay. You know, and it was the first time anyone reflected back to me that I had grown up in a very seriously damaged situation. (laughs) Um, um, And I think it wasn't until later when I went into therapy that I began to, because for many, many, many years, I had no memory of the first 10 years of my life. Absolutely no memory. 
it was just blotto. Like I began at 10. Hmm. And then as I became, as I began to melt and my numbness began to melt over time because I was highly anesthetized. I was a raging alcoholic and a drug addict. I just anesthetized. And, and so it took a process of numbing and, and coming out of numbing and melting and melting. So I began to feel and then began to remember, you know. So how, how did you break the cycle of abusing yourself, basically? I mean, through drugs and alcohol. How did you... With the help of really amazing people. I mean, I, you know, somebody said the other night, like, what are the things that saved you, right? And I think there were two things that saved me. One was imagination and the ability to imagine another world where I was going and people who would be coming. And the other was, was just amazingly kind people who intervened on my behalf throughout my life. And I don't think we can underestimate how one person's kindness towards somebody can absolutely radicalize their life, particularly when you've come from total deprivation. Do you know? And I, I think I was in the 12-step programs for a long time, and, and um, when I came into the 12-step programs, there was, there was like no women, and people were so kind to me. And it was that, you know, um, people could see me before I could see myself. Mm-hmm. And they held a vision of me that, that I could live into. And I think it's why I believe, um, I don't know, when I hit bottom, I hit rock bottom as an alcoholic, and it was a really bad scene, and I almost died. And I got on my hands and knees in a parking lot in Puerto Rico. I, and I remember this like it was yesterday. I was 23 years old. I said, if you don't let me go crazy or die, I promise you, if, if you help me get better, I will go back for the others. I swear to God. And you know what? That was the best vow I ever made. You know, because I think when you give people what you want the most, you heal the broken part inside you. Um, it's always going out to help people that you heal yourself because it's too hard in here, you know? Yeah. And, that, and that comes back to, well, you had a conversation with Kimberly Crenshaw and she called it having, you have to have radical empathy, like at its root, mm-hmm. empathy to be able it feels like to be able to break out of, out of that because you have to be able to hold what happened to you and know that it was real and also to be able to have, start to have an understanding of where it came from. Totally. And I think part of it is checking out with yourself. Like, I feel like I used to, I, I would have empathy for this person and this person, but I had conditional empathy, <laughs> right? There were the people I just didn't have empathy for, like men, right? Um, and this book really changed that. But I want to tell you this one little story because this, this was the day when, when I began to understand how empathy can't be conditional. I was working at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility and it was running groups. And I had this group of amazing um, long-term inmates who were all there for violent crimes, mainly murders. And I had one session with these women. I fell completely in love with all of them except for one. And this woman gave me the super creeps and I didn't like her. And I had no compassion for her and no empathy for her. And so we were going around every week. And each week, it was like you tell one story from one to nine that would really evidence what you went through at that period. So we'd go around the circle. And the second session, that woman came in and she sat down next to me. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> like, I had such a creepy feeling about this woman, I can't tell you. And all the women around, and I want to tell you that just about every woman in that circle who had, had been radically, horribly abused as children, right? So we got to her, and I was actually like kind of leaning like this, you know, like <laughs> away from her. 
And she started to tell her story. And she said that when she was a child, her mother and her stepfather rented her out as a sex toy. Well, you know, they had all these clients that would use her basically as a baby dildo, and they would do everything to her, and they would tie her to beds, and they would just horrible things. And then her mother died, and her stepfather married her. And he then turned her into his little pimp, where she would go out and she would find children in the neighborhood and bring them in so they could abuse them. And one of the children died, and she came to prison. And when she was in prison, she had no idea why she was there. Because she had never lived in any other moral universe. She had nothing to compare it to. She didn't understand that what had happened to her was bad because that was all that she knew. And it took her five years in prison to understand it. And then she started to cut herself to try to kill herself. And she actually said in the group, never let me out of prison. And I just started to sob. And I realized I had made a story up about this woman because of her pockmarked skin and the way she looked and her vibration. And I, I had written her off. And I made a contract with myself that after that day, I would just assume that any person I sat next to was traumatized and had been through something really terrible. And if it wasn't first, it, it wasn't primary, it was secondary, or they were witness to it, and that everybody we're sitting next to is traumatized. Some more than others, some have more privileged in their trauma, but we're all suffering. And we're suffering so much in this country, and I'm sorry I'm crying, but I've just been around this country for the last days and days. I feel like I've fallen into the center of the wound. We are so hurting in this country. We are so exiled. We're so lonely. We're so separated. We're so divided. And if we're going to go on, we have to reach out and feel each other and let each other into ourselves and take everybody in so that we feel each other and we understand we're not alone in this and we're in the same struggle to evolve as human beings and to become free from our suffering. Sorry. It's been a lot, a lot of stories, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Um... Well, let's, let's talk about how others might use this approach. I mean, you, you've set up a website. Um, you're going to do a play. You, you said that it's an offering, not a prescription, that maybe not everyone's going to want to do it. But you're, you're starting to see results. And, I, I mean, I feel like you're creating a model for how the world can be by doing this. Well, I, I think there's so many people doing such amazing work right now with restorative justice and really beginning to understand that prisons are not the answer. And that's the metaphor. Like, we have to get out of prisons, just even cages. The idea that we harden things rather than releasing things and moving through, through things. And, and what I hope is, is that, first of all, I hope that men will be inspired on their own to begin to come forward, to start to work with clergy, with counselors, to go through a process where they look at their behavior, where they look at what they've done, where they begin to write their apologies and write in and go through a process. And, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw and I were talking like, how does this apply to justice? Maybe there becomes a way where prosecutors say to victims, what do you want? Do you want your perpetrator in prison or do you want an apology process? 
Do you want to see your perpetrator go through a year or two where they do massive therapy, massive work on themselves, spiritual work, where they go through something? And at the end, we have panels in communities of advocates and social justice people and therapists who sit and listen to the perpetrator make an apology to the victim. And if the victim accepts it, then the panel and the victim determine whether that person has done the work or they have to go back and do more work. But we have, we have ways out of this. So we're not freezing people forever in their badness and in their mistakes because we're all prisoners to racist patriarchy. It's brought us all up. We have to admit to that. Like the system has created all of us. So what we need is the men now to catalyze this and, and say, I'm coming forward to break out of the system. That, that takes us to our, our last reading because ultimately, spoiler alert, there is an apology in the book. Um, and we're going to hear it. So reading six, please. Eve, let me say these words. I am sorry. I am sorry. Let me sit here at the final hour. Let me get it right this time. Let me be staggered by your tenderness. Let me risk fragility. Let me be rendered vulnerable. Let me be lost. Let me be still. Let me not occupy or oppress. Let me not conquer or destroy. Let me bathe in the rapture. Let me be the father. Let me be the father who mirrors your kind-heartedness back to you. Let me lay no claims. Let me bear witness and not invade. Eve. I free you from the covenant. I revoke the lie. I lift the curse. Old man, be gone. That was Eve Ensler, playwright, activist, and author of the book The Apology, speaking with me at the Commonwealth Club of California on June 11th of 2019. You can check out Inflection Point and hear more stories about women rising up at inflectionpointradio.org. And remember how Eve said she'd never heard a man apologize publicly, authentically, and deeply for what he'd done? Well, remember to tell her about Reckonings on Instagram at The Apology. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and you've been listening to a special edition of Reckonings.